Hey everyone, this is Flippin' Finance. I'm Sam Ismore and I'm joined by my co-host Fabian. Hello, hello. Today we have a guest, Anthony Zhang from VinoVest. You wanna say hi? Hey everybody, hey Sam, hey Fabian. Today is, what are we today? May? May 16th, 15th, buddy. May 16th, 2023. And today we're covering investing in wine and maybe a little bit of whiskey. But before that, kick the disclosure music, Fabian. As always, none of this is investment advice and does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities, nor do any of my opinions reflect those of my employer, Vallejo Financial Advisors, or any of its affiliates. This is for educational purposes only. And things change, so we have no duty to go back and revise any information. And as always, any past performance does not guarantee future performance, so keep that in mind. With that, I think we're good. Fabian, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm really excited for for this conversation. Uh, Anybody that knows me knows that I do like to drink beer, wine, whiskey. So the, the topics that we're covering today, very exciting. I think it's a great clash of my interests and your work life, Sam. Uh, so mm-hmm. It's rare that we ever have a, a guest on or a topic that kind of intersects, you know, those two things so greatly. So um, yeah, excited to dive in today. And Anthony, I can start with a softball question, but maybe start with what was your reasoning for starting VinoVest? Yeah, let's, let's start with that. So um, VinoVest were a wine and spirits investment platform founded in 2019. And in 2019, I was deep in crypto, um, was working at head of marketing at a cryptocurrency company. And throughout the past few years, I'd been dabbling in a bunch of different alternative assets. So not only was I investing in you know, your stocks, bonds, real estate, venture capital. And I was also doing some pretty esoteric stuff, namely investing in wine, investing in whiskey, watches, flipping even a rare violin on on occasion. So okay, that's a first. I haven't heard that one before. Trading, yeah. Right. Um, but wine was the only thing that actually bridged my sort of financial interests with personal interests, right? Like Fabian, love to drink wine, whiskey, you name it. And it was something in which I really wanted to be able to build a wine collection in which the profits that I generated off the appreciation were enough to offset the wine that I was consuming and and spending on. So that's kind of how it all started. Um, I wasn't really able to find any other players out there in the market who could help do that for me. And I decided to build one myself. And then if I'm an investor, so I'm a financial advisor, obviously, and if a client comes to me and go, Hey, I heard of VinoVest, you know, they're the best and only one out there. What should I tell them? Why should we be investing in wine or whiskey to begin with? Yeah, I think, you know, we work with a lot of financial advisors and for a lot of clients, right. It's part of that alternatives allocation. So determining what else that client has allocated to alternatives or what they're planning on increasing or decreasing their exposure to. And then we then talk about, all right, is this, asset the right fit for you, right? Wine and whiskey, they're quite long-term assets. They depend on factors such as maturation as well as global consumption to appreciate in value. And if someone is looking for something that's a you know, two-year hold versus five-year hold versus 10-year hold, 
we've got different products and offerings to be able to offer that client. And I think the third reason why somebody would invest is just the hedge, right? The lack of correlation has against the markets, especially times like these, and the low volatility compared to equities. They're all things in a portfolio that you'd want to look for, depending on what the client has in their portfolio right now. And then I think the final amount, which is, you know, depends on each client is how much they want to put in and how they do they want to deploy their capital over time. So going through your website, I would summarize it as you're still getting good returns from it. There's lower correlation, standard deviation to, to traditional asset classes. So that's kind of what I would call CFA catnip. We love an uncorrelated asset to, to other things because it lowers the risk, you know, increases your shark ratio for all the nerds out there. And then when you're looking at someone with a higher net worth, would, would you be like put 1% into this or is it kind of up to the advisor in a way or just I could see people putting 10% yeah. of liquid net worth in the, into this? I would say people usually start out with a couple of percent. So maybe they'll put 1% to wine, 1% to whiskey. And because this is, we always see this as kind of a gradual deployment, right? It's not like we're buying all the world's wine on day one. There are certain seasons, there are certain vintage years that we want to pick from. So we always see this as like a multi-year build-out process. So eventually that 1% may turn into 5% each, right, for a 10% total. And that's how the clients are able to build out. And that also is the same on the exit window, right? Then you're exiting over the course of different windows and it's all laddered up. So it's smooth entry, smooth exit as well. And when you're looking at the vintages, so when Fabian and I were, were making sure our mics worked for this, uh, we, we kind of read some of the articles and Dom Permian is, I don't know if I just said that right, is uh, 2008 is a great vintage. Mm-hmm. But when it's, when it's coming out, how do, how do you figure out this is a great vintage that we want to buy? How do you find the undervalued ones that are underappreciated? Talk to me like, because I don't really understand that part. I'm like, I like this wine. It's $45. If I can get a case of this, this is great. But from an investing standpoint, I don't know anything about that. Apparently, 2008 Dom is great. Yeah, you know, but you are I'm- right. It is great. Um, and when we're analyzing wines for investment, um, first, we look at the relative value compared to previous vintages, right? So you take a look at the 08 Dom versus the 07, 06, 05, 04, back, so forth and so forth, right? And then you look at the critic scores, right? Because then there's relative value because 07 was not a great vintage. So you'd want to compare it to the next greatest vintage, which would have been in this case 04, 02, or 2000, right? So those are ones that critics rated at 98 or 99. So you're seeing, all right, well, if the 08 is starting at $150, and we can see here that the 2000 has eight years of track record, it started at $90, and now it's 350 you can be able to plot out what the future appreciation curve will look like. Um, so that's on just a wine by wine level, analyzing it against the same winery. Then we'll do kind of like a cross-section, look at the region of Champagne, in which do we think Dom Perignon is going to overperform or underperform the entire region of Champagne producers, right? So that's a second sure. analysis we'll make. And then thirdly, we're going to look at you know, what else you have in your portfolio, right? What's the price point and how we can fit that into a diversified approach for a client who says has $10,000 versus a client who has $100,000, right? So we look at portfolio concentration for that specific client when we're determining if that's a good investment choice for them or not. Are you able to figure out like 
okay, Bordeaux had a really dry summer. This is going to be good for that vintage. Are you able to go and buy that before you're able to even get the critic scores? Or are you always kind of doing it as things come out or that's how the wine industry works is the critics are good at first and they'll just start distributing things out or you're able to buy things before making like an assumption of, we think this is going to be a really good vintage based on these weather, weather patterns and X, Y, Z. Yeah. So a lot of times we're actually tasting alongside the critics. So right okay. now, you know, it's May 16th. We're about three, three weeks earlier. We had what's called Bordeaux on Premier, which is like the biggest event of the Bordeaux region. All of the wine critics go there. All the wine buyers in the world go there and we're tasting directly from the barrel. Right. So then we're able to kind of get some, early intel as the critics are writing up the reports over the coming weeks on what they think of it, general consensus from the buyers on, all right, this is good. This is bad. We want to get a lot of it or only a little bit, right? So then that helps us be able to determine price target ranges for new releases in which the release price is really the most important thing, right? For that future value. Yeah. Is that where you were last week, Fabian? You're at the Bordeaux conference? Oh, yeah. You didn't... (laughs) Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Anthony, could, do you mind kind of like walking through how the platform works? Like if I were to invest, like what, what does that process look like? Yeah. So first step is come to our website, right? And we have a short personalized quiz for you in determining what's your current level of wine investment experience, how much assets you have in total that are investable, and then also how long you're looking to be able to hold this asset for then we'll give you a recommended asset allocation mix, right? You agree to it, and then we'll start deploying on it, right? So say you have like a million dollars in net worth, you're deciding to put 50K in, right? So based on that 50K and your desired time window of say five to seven year exit, we'll then be building out a portfolio of 50K worth of wines that we think are going to reach their maturity in five to seven years. And then we diversify it across different regions, right? So it's not all Bordeaux, not all California, not all Italy or Champagne. We're going to be giving you a mix of different types of wines so that you'll also have downside protection in case one region does really poorly one year. So we're diversifying with wine like we do in stocks. Exactly. But it sounds like, you know, there's a new, there's a new Apple two version every year, new Apple three version. In a way. Exactly. So you could be yeah, buying, you know, year after year, the exact same wine or stock, but it's going to be a little bit different, right? The weather conditions are different. The supply is different. The critic scores are different. So um, there's a little bit of nuance there that makes it, you know, not exactly apples to apples when picking stocks. A um, couple more questions. So when, when you're making these, when you're acquiring these bottles of wine, are you buying in quantities to where I could always... Like I'll, I'll just refer to it as like keeping one on ice, you know, to to invest and kind of save, and then maybe I want to drink one. So, are you getting multiple so that you can do that, or is it mostly like all single bottles? So we'll buy by the case, um, and the reason is that when you're looking at the resale market, the case that it comes in is actually quite important, right? If you give it a you know, sports card analogy, right, you want it to be in mint condition, you want it mm-hmm. to you know have or a sneakerhead analogy, right? You want it in the original packaging. And that leads to higher premiums on the resale market. So we'll typically buy by the case loose bottles, right? It's you can find them for cheaper if you're buying by the bottle, but there's a lot of risk there. Um, so we buy by the case, we sell like counterfeit, the case. counterfeit yeah, risk, counterfeit risk, storage risk, and you know there's there's no cool casing for it to come into, which collectors love. So you you guys are thinking like next step, the collector is going to want the case, 
with the wood and the beautiful emblem and everything too. Whereas me and Fabian would just drink it. Exactly. You know, some people don't care about it, but we want to be able to have a standard for VinoVest in knowing that we're doing everything that we possibly can upfront to maximize that potential resale value down the line. And this is not like a NFT crypto situation, right? Like these actually exist. Help us walk, walk us through where, where our wine is sitting and, I think ultimately you said you were trying to supplement your wine habit. How do we eventually get to drink it? Yeah. So that's the goal on the wine side. Exactly. That's the goal. Drink, drinking your profits away. Um, Yeah. So on the wine side, most of our wine is located in Europe, given that that's where they're sourced from the vineyards. So we like to keep it as close to the source as possible. We have several warehouses in France and the UK um, and in other countries such as Switzerland as well. And then we have another warehouse in California for a lot of our American acquisitions. On the whiskey side, which we haven't touched on yet, we've got all of our scotch barrels in Scotland and then our American bourbon here in the United States. So they're all stored, all third party, all independently verifiable, which means that, say, Sam, if you wanted to pull a case from uh, your investment portfolio into your cellar for you know, your upcoming wedding, right? you can do that and you can enjoy that shipped straight to your home. So can you ship single bottles or am I shipping a case? I would recommend shipping in cases, right? The cost to ship a bottle is pretty much the same as the cost to ship an entire case. So duly noted. you definitely want to be able to get those economies of scale. And I've, and I've realized that as I've tried to establish a Bordeaux issue with my fiance, we're not there financially yet, but maybe one day, but it's like, you just want to ship the whole case. You want to get three bottles. But when I ship from my new friend in Bordeaux, there's a VAT tax. If I go do that through y'all, is there like a similar, is someone, where, how does that work for me personally? Yeah. So when you're shipping and when we're buying, we always buy what's called in-bond pricing. So that means that you don't incur the VAT tax when you're actually buying it. You only incur it when it's being shipped to its final delivery location. And here's the, okay. here's the trick that comes with that that's really interesting with wine, right? So say you buy a case of wine, right? It's $1,000, right? So your 20% VAT tax would be 200 But they only assess the VAT on your purchase price. So say five years later, that $1,000 case of wine is now worth $3,000, right? And then when you're shipping it to yourself, you only still need to pay the VAT as if it were $1,000 instead of the $3,000 value which is why a lot of seasoned collectors, they choose to keep their wine abroad until it's time for final consumption so they can take advantage of that tax rule. Okay. So I can, let's say we get that $1,000 case and, oh man, it pops up to five, but Fabian, I mean, we want to drink one of them. So we'll ship it to us. We'll, we won't pay the, the that on the $5,000 case now and we can sell the rest exactly. effectively. Exactly. Okay. Good to know. You taking notes, Fabian? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Plentiful notes. Um, you mentioned that the whiskey's in barrels. Is that how you're purchasing both scotch and like um, like bourbon or whiskey here in America? Yeah. So unlike the wine side in which we're purchasing bottles and cases, really a lot of the value accrual on the whiskey side is in the barrel. Because once you bottle it, right, it's say an 18-year-old single malt scotch. It's always going to be 18 years old, no matter how old that bottle is. It's because they talk about the time that it spends in the barrel. So we'll buy barrels, we'll age them, and then we'll sell them off to a brand or a bottler. And then they'll be able to, that's when we realize a return. And now whiskey has a different 
probably return profile than wine given one it's it's annoyingly popular it's too popular now um to go out and find something but also they can't keep up with um the production of it at all from like the wooden barrels they're going to start running into issues with that and just some of the really popular ones is that kind of the advantage you feel of whiskey over wine because i feel like wine's a known commodity and whiskey has just been on this tear for i don't know seven or eight years yeah whiskey is certainly i think on a higher trajectory especially in the last decade Uh, when you look globally though you're absolutely right in that wine is much more established right it's really the whiskey drinking countries are really just like us in the states scotland and maybe japan right and wine everybody drinks wine everywhere that's why globally it's about three and a half x the size of the whiskey market so I'd say wine has better liquidity, right? Just because there's more participants in it. But whiskey, certainly, if you can manage it correctly, it definitely can yield higher profits in, the, in a shorter term, especially given the supply constraints that you're mentioning, right? There's going to be a shortage of the actual oak that is being used to even create the barrels in the coming years, right? It, you can't speed up the pace of a tree to grow to make oak. And right now, the rate of consumption is outstripping the supply. I heard a little rumor that they're just going to have to change the rules for the oak. Yeah, they might. They might have to do that because, or somehow, some scientist is is going to discover how to turbocharge an oak tree. Yeah, man, you never know. Yeah, G- GMO oak trees coming coming soon to your bourbon. Baby, you have more uh, whiskey questions. More whiskey questions. Um, yeah, it's it's just interesting because of the like how you consume the two, the difference, right? So. You know, have you noticed a difference in the type of people that are investing in one versus another? With a bottle of wine, once you open it, you pretty much have to drink it. Whereas, you know, once you get, and this is a difference because you're really not buying it. I mean, you're essentially not really buying it to consume. You're in, in buying the whiskey to resell then, correct? Well, with the whiskey, you can actually just bottle yourself as well. So we do have some whiskey enthusiasts who down the line, they planning on just making like a private label run for their families or for their friends. So it's different parts of the supply chain that we're tackling, right? Wine gets harvest, goes into barrel, then goes into the bottle, right? That's when we're investing. And then on the whiskey or on the whiskey side, right? It goes in the barrel. We're investing in there for before it gets bottled. Yeah. How do you how do you get around like the three tier system? Because typically when you say you you purchase a barrel to get that bottled, you then have to work through a distributor, kind of get it from a liquor store to then go and get it right. They can't just bottle it and hand it over to you. How have you guys managed um, kind of working around that? So all third parties, right? Cause we're not allowed to hold all the licenses in all the States and liquor is certainly a lot trickier than wine, especially because of the three tier and shipping logistics. So we'd have to work with, depending on the state that you're in, I think Indiana, I'm not even sure if you can even get your wine or whiskey or whiskey deliveries. Shipped. You can do it. You can. Okay. You can do it. All right. I'll have to learn how then. Um, So on that side, right, it is is a lot trickier to kind of navigate the different layers and tiers and everybody wants their cut, right, when it gets to the bottling side. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, And then another question, just kind of as a collector of of various different things myself, like if, if you wanted, you know, like you said, a vintage of like a 2008, do you have the opportunity to specify kind of what you're looking for within the platform versus buying something kind of new? 
don't know if that question makes sense, yeah, right? No, so instead of getting something bottled in 2023, like, can I go in there and look for quote unquote dusties, but you know, for, for wine, not necessarily whiskey? Yeah, you certainly can. So we have two different products offered on the VinoVest platform. The first one, which I mentioned is the managed product. So that's more, you know, fully managed. We're doing it all for you, right? It's, it's really non-discretionary, but we also have a self-directed product in which you can pretty much browse our marketplace and be able to set different bids or offer up wines and whiskeys. Um, and that allows you to kind of stock pick essentially, right? If you want to go all in, you know, hundred percent concentration on a particular vintage, you can then put out a bid for it and see if anyone's willing to sell it to you. I was trying to see what that, that Dom bottle was going for, but it's not working right now for me. I can't log in. Um, but what we could do is what I'm hearing is we, Fabian and I can buy our own barrel, ship it to ourselves in five, five years, work through the logistics, but then we can have like our own little bottle to share with our family. Yeah. It could be like the Sam and Fabian label, right? Ooh. Okay. I, I'd drink that. <laughs> you better. You're going to be one of two people drinking it. So <laughs> what, um, what kind of wine or whiskey faux pas hot takes do you have where you see someone at a wine bar and you're just like, Oh my God. Uh, like if you saw me at the wine bar, you'd be like this idiot. I don't know. I mean, I don't come from a wine background, so I'd say I'm less sensitive to probably all the faux pas that are happening in the world. And I think just from a, you know, just from like a ethos standpoint, right. I, I came in as an outsider was definitely made fun of myself going into a lot of these fancy wine auctions or wine dinners. So I'm not the type of person who's going to turn his nose up. Like if you want to throw ice cubes in, do it. If you want to, I don't know, do something crazy, like drink it out of a beer glass, do it right. There's obviously preferred ways to consume and enjoy wine and whiskey. But at the end of the day, all I care about is if people are enjoying and, and drinking it, it doesn't really matter how it gets done. Okay. So Fagan, we won't judge you for the ice cubes. That's very cosmopolitan. You know, they, they do that <laughs> in other places. So it's okay. Uh, Anthony, what, um, like when you got this started, what was like, what was the moment where you realized that this was a great business opportunity to, to start being a best? Was there a bottle that you're just like, holy cow, I got this and I got like, I, I was able to flip it or, or how did that kind of coalesce? How did that happen? Yeah. So talking bottle flips, it was a bottle of 2015 Sasakaya, which is an Italian um, Italian wine, super Tuscan. I bought it for, I think, like 100-something. And then only, I think, less than a year later, it got rated in a magazine. And just because of that, the price 3 x between when I bought it and less than a year later. And I was like, holy cow, right? That was, that was kind of like the holy shit moment for me. And for VinoVest... I think the breaking point in which led me and my co-founder to make this a full-time thing versus a hobby was that people who didn't even know anything about wine, who didn't even drink, who I knew probably wouldn't spend more than $25 on a bottle of wine at home, they were throwing thousands of dollars at us being like, hey, invest this, invest this. So we're able to kind of shift people's perspectives on wine so that they think of it as an investable rather than a consumable and that perspective shift made me realize, oh, wow, this is a way bigger market than just wine enthusiasts, right? People who don't even drink wine are going to invest significant capital into this market. 
Do you think the consumable nature of this product, I guess almost all products in a way are consumable, it has a finite life, but that actually helps the investing part of, of wine and whiskey? Because if you have Pappy or something like that, or if you have like a Super Tuscan that rated really high, you almost don't want to drink it and just keep it longer. But somebody somewhere is going to drink it, right? Exactly. Someone somewhere has to drink it at the end of the day. And that leaves, say, if there's only 100 bottles of Pappy left, someone drank it, there's only 99, right? That supply and demand curve, fundamentally, it just makes wine and whiskey more valuable as time goes on. So I think that's really a key fact of how wine is such a good performing asset and why it's uncorrelated, right? The reasons why people may drink, maybe maybe some can argue are correlated to the market, right? There, there are studies that show that alcohol consumption rises during recessions, and uh, did during COVID. Yeah, they definitely did in my household too. I remember just looking at the trash cans all around the neighborhood, and it's just wine, wine, wine. Yeah. I think looking through the website, you guys don't do a lot of younger wine investing. Is that just because if one of these needs to be drank in two or three years, it doesn't make for a good investable candidate? Yeah, I'd say so, right? Because most of the wine that you see in retail stores or grocery stores, right, they're really meant to be enjoyed within their first couple of years of production. They're not meant to age 5, 10, 15 years, right? So they're long-term wine. But the ones that we deal with, right, they're ones that have survived the test of time, right? These wineries have been making wine for hundreds of years. You have that historical price appreciation data that shows that not only is the price going up after 10, 20 years, but the wine is still good and people still want it and demand is still high. So a lot of the vintages that we're buying, we buy them young, but we sell them when they're you know, quite mature. Baby, any other burning questions? No, this is kind of running out of mind. This is just so interesting because culturally, you know, the collectibles and maybe it's just kind of my age generation, right? Being a kind of an older millennial, um, you know, we grew up with Beanie Babies and Pogs and then you've got like uh, whatever those playing cards are that people like to to, to, to buy. Yu-Gi-Oh! And Yu-Gi-Oh! Pokemon <laughs> cards. Yeah, Pokemon, that's the one. Magic the uh, Gathering. But then, like but then I, I collect a ton of vinyl, right? And there's just, it just kind of feels like this collectible nature has kind of infiltrated the zeitgeist and kind of around this time when you decided to to kind of start VinoVest, uh, it, it's kind of swept into that kind of period of transition where more people were maybe diving into collectibles and seeing these as alternative uh, ways to invest money, right? You've got, you know, sneaker collectors, bourbon, you know, people that, that are going nuts. So it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially with our timing of founding, right? Like short after, shortly after we founded COVID happened, everyone's stuck at home, right? Reconsidering their life. And a lot of people went back to their childhood passions, right? And collecting to your point, all those cool things. And you know, wine has been something that's been collected for thousands of years, right? You've got ancient wine cellars of the Romans, our founding fathers were really huge Bordeaux enthusiasts and collectors. And it's something that I think ultra wealthy people have been doing for a very long time. And we're just kind of bringing into the mainstream and making it more accessible. I think that's a good place to end. What do you think, Damien? Yeah. Well, uh, appreciate your time. Thank you for joining. And as always, uh, subscribe, rate and share and reach out with your questions. We're doing the debt ceiling coming up soon. So that should be riveting. Um, but as always, thanks for listening. Bye.